Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. So everyone's talking about what's happening out in the economy right now. Um, Inflation, 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 interest rates, interest rates, interest rates. We thought it would be a great idea to have Clint Turner join us today. Uh, Clint's the owner of Away Land Company. Uh, He has built two seven-figure businesses, uh, and he's in the process of making them two eight-figure businesses on the the land side. He's got a a real interesting model, folks. And for those of you that are are thinking about what so many of us have been thinking about, kind of turning in that nine to five and and looking for a different way to live and build a passive income stream that's resilient, recession-proof, uh, and doesn't require you know eighty hours a week of your your time and attention. I think Clint's on to something here, and uh, we're real excited for you to join us today, Clint. Thank you so much, Bud. Yeah, James. Thanks for the intro. Very yeah. kind of you. <laughs> oh, my my pleasure. I'm a deal junkie. I love I love to get into the weeds on this stuff. So uh, anytime we have the opportunity to speak to someone that's doing something a, a little different, uh, it's exciting for me. So. Uh, if you, if we could give us in one or two minutes, just a snapshot of what Away Land Company does first, and then we'll get into the backstory. Yeah. So, um, you know, Away Land Company, that's my parent land, land company, um, has really gone through an evolution over the last six years, as most people have to with shifting markets. But the primary story of Away Land Company, I, started it. I'm 27 right now. I started it when I was 20, 21. And we got into flipping vacant lots. That's what we were doing. Right. So we go and buy lots at that time. We could buy lots for 30 cents on the dollar pretty regularly. Um, and we can bring them to market at 70 cents on the dollar and we could turn them pretty quickly. Right. And where, uh, and this is just, you know, not by, I would say my necessary expertise. It's just what I learned uh, when when I got started the podcast, I was listening to the programs I took, all the things, you know, people were talking about financing your own properties, right? Financing your own land. And when you can buy land cheap enough, we can, you know, we can put our own first lien mortgage behind it, right? And we can act as the bank. And as I like to say, the bank always wins. So it's always great to be in the bank seat, right? Um, So that's what we started doing. We were buying smaller, medium-sized properties. Uh, We were selling probably half of them on owner financing where we would, we'd hold the note, we'd earn, uh, we'd, you know, make all the interest upside. And then when people default, we can talk about that later, but, uh, we like defaults in our business. So, <laughs> uh, so, you know, we started that. And then over the past few years, we've, we've kind of found the tangential niche where, um, where we're, we're subdividing and creating this, this, this rural land inventory. Right. Um, and so that's kind of what we're doing right now. We're, we're about 50, 50 between buying and flipping lots, uh, with owner financing and then buying bigger projects that we're doing that we're putting a little bit of value add into, to, to make into a lot of smaller parcels. 
you know, was there a strong mentor or presence in your life around real estate that motivated you? Like, you know, how, how did you, how did you get into the gig to begin with? Yeah. Um, no, no strong mentor or family member or anything. I've always been very entrepreneurial though, from, from the young age. Um, my best friend also very entrepreneurial. We tell this, like to tell the story we, we met in, in middle school, I think is what it was. And in middle school, I was buying iPhones because you could buy them cheap off Craigslist. Or you could buy them cheap for people who didn't understand the value. And you could sell them for two or three times. So we'd buy a phone for 50, bucks, sell it for two, 300. And my buddy was selling a phone and I bought it for like 80 bucks. And at the time they did promotions where it's like, you know, $50 for a new phone. So nobody really understood that the phones were being financed, right? Whatever. Um, anyhow, so my buddy like thinks he ripped me off that, you know, I bought his phone and we come back after the weekend. He's like, so what'd you do with that phone? Kind of like jabbing at me. Like I sold it. He's like, what, how much you sell it for? I said, $350. He's like, what? This guy just like took me for a ride. So, you know, I've always been like, uh, uh, it, that was the spark of a very good friendship, but, um, I've always been very entrepreneurial and I've had a lot of things that weren't real estate that didn't work as I was going through college and uh, kind of coming up or some that worked, worked minorly. Um, you know, with Landman, it was just something I heard about. I learned about it. It kind of clicked with me. And so I was trying it alongside some other things and, you know, we had a couple big wins and I was like, shit, you can make some serious money doing this. <laughs> right. It's kind of the first real big wins that I'd had uh, in the entrepreneurial journey. But yeah, I've always just wanted, man, to, to, to be a business owner, to work for myself. Um, I went to have a background in engineering. I got a four year, four and a half year, whatever, um, uh, de degree in mechanical and electrical engineering. And I did that for a couple of years, but just grinding the sales. Cause that's, that's where I went into naturally was the sales side of it. That's just, it's a grind, man. It's tough. Um, then I was like, man, there, there are so many different ways that you can go make 60 or $70,000 a year just to cover that first, that first base. Right. And so that's where I was. And I was just in that like hungry, trying to do something different stage. And land was the first thing that worked. <laughs> it was where I was finding a success to where I could leave the job and do the things. Um, and so I've just always loved it and had an attachment to it since. What, what is the average? Is it 20%, 25%, 30% of, of, of the comp? What is your, your sweet spot? Yeah. So I'll definitely say it's change, right? And that's that's a great point you make. And I always push back when anybody tells me it's too competitive or nobody's selling anymore. And we're finding deals every month, you know, <laughs> uh, it might not be, you know, it might take a different set of skills than you have, but there's, there's definitely different, there's definitely deals out there. Um, you know, why do people sell land cheap? There's a few different reasons when you think about it logically. The first thing I'll say is five or six years ago, we really would buy, and it's really almost like a measuring stick. However many drive it is to the, like however many minute drive it is to the major metro, the farther that is, the lower the number is, right? Both in price of the property and in and in what percent you can buy it at, if that makes sense, right? So property two hours from the city, I could, you know, realistically buy for let's say 30 cents or 40 cents on the dollar. Whereas mm -hmm. a property 30 minutes outside of Dallas, where I live right now, you know, I could probably wouldn't expect to buy most of my deals for any less than 70 cents on the dollar or 60 cents or 50, you know, somewhere in there. Um, so that's the first thing I say is the quality of the land really drives, uh, drives what discount you're going to buy it at. 
right? Um, first off, if you've ever flown in an airplane, which actually a surprising amount of people haven't, but uh, that's a different <laughs> that's a different conversation. If you ever flown an airplane, there's just vast amounts of land you, that you look out over. When you drive in a car a long distance, you see vast amounts of land. Everybody, every piece of land you've ever looked at is owned by someone, right? It could be the state. The state owns it. I don't know the exact percentage, but you know, roughly a third. But the other two thirds are owned by like Joe down the street or like somebody, right? And there is just so many. I don't know the exact number. I knew I've known it in the past. I think there's twenty or thirty or forty million or something like that vacant land parcels in the United States that are already platted, right? Not the fact that you can create more, um, but there's so much inventory, right? And people don't have, like when you're trying to buy an apartment complex or you're trying to buy someone's house at a discount, there's a legitimate argument to be made where somebody says, well, I don't want to sell you my house at 70 cents on the dollar, right? I live here, like I'm attached to the house. A lot of that land that you see was Uncle Joe's and then Uncle Joe died and then it went down to this person and they've used it or they've never seen it, they've never been to it. They just know it exists right? Um, they don't have the same level of emotional attachment to the piece of land as maybe somebody does to a house or a storage facility or apartment complex, something like that, right? There's a very little attachment a lot of the times to the piece of land from the person we buy. There's plenty of people that are very attached to their land and tell us to go pound sand, mm -hmm. um, but there's some that don't, right? That they don't, they don't know much about the property. So, you know, I will say there's there's a lot of reading out there if you get into land investing that says you can buy land at 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. You know, I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. That maybe 10 years ago, you know, I would say maybe we're at a, a level of like you can buy land at 40 cents on the dollar if it's farther out and you're probably going to be eking up towards 60, 70, 80% as the quality of the property goes up. But, you know, if you can buy a million dollar property at 70 cents on the dollar, there's a lot of money to be made there, right? Um, so there's a lot of different ways to skin that cap, but there are plenty of people out there that own property that they've never been to, aren't attached to, and will definitely send. You just got to get in touch with them. The VAs today are clearing title, they're doing proper diligence, they're handling marketing. I mean, there's a mess of, of responsibilities that you don't have to handle yourself anymore uh, or have a, an office with a team of 10 uh, in person handling that work. Has that been your experience? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, for we've done 600 and something deals in the last six years. And I've now this has changed a bit because I've started doing a lot bigger deals lately. But um, for let's call it 580 of those deals, I've never, I never even saw, I never touched, I never stepped on, right? It was just shuffling paper was the true mechanic at the end of the day. Um, yeah, man, it, the way I like to tell people is that everything, just about everything in real estate or in land, really almost any real estate asset class, it's commoditized about 95% of the way. The only 5% that's not a commodity or has a pretty standard price around it is exactly what you said, is being a deal junkie or like being a deal maker is, 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 is what I say on my side. Um, that's the only thing like VAs run 10 to $40 an hour, right? Attorneys run two to $600 an hour. Title companies cost just about the same, right? Depending on where you go. Like everything is 
done for you more or less. There's a, there, there's learning, there's specifics, but where you really make the money is you're a deal maker, right? That's the only thing that you can't go and just pay somebody and they give you a deal, right? It's the skill. Um, and so, yeah, like, you know, that's really what it is at the end of the day is everything else VAs from first phone call, first lead, first time a person reaches out, uh, to close is can pretty much be done 95% without you. The 5% where you want to play is being the deal maker, right? Closing deals, doing, doing, doing whatever you got to do to get the deal closed. I've, I've done many deals lately, uh, on the bed of my truck because I went out. And this guy won't, you know, he won't sign the contract on DocuSign. That's like, okay, well, I'll fucking drive out and meet you. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I'm like, cause, cause of this, right? I'll, I'll meet you at the day at, at the property, and we shake hands and drive around in the truck, and all of a sudden we got we're on the bed of the truck signing the document, right? Yeah, that's the five percent that you want to play in and what you want to do. Everything else can be done by other people. So yeah, we have a pretty lean team. I've been up to twenty. I've been alone, obviously, at the beginning. Um, we operate with like five or six people right now. Um, and that's about all I do is just play in that final that final phase of, all right, numbers look good. Like, let's make this deal happen somehow, right? Let's get that contract signed. So um, everything other than that can be done by someone else. So you're, are you focused now more on uh, finding buyers for your product per se only, or are you also offering, um, consulting and coaching to teach people how to do what you do? Yeah. Um, well, you know, we do both. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of consulting over the last four or five years. I don't do as much anymore. Um, we kind of have a, we have a mastermind group for experienced investors, and that's pretty much our main consulting side product right now. But the majority of what we do is, yeah, we we find the deal and then we bring it to the market often, right? And the market is normally hungry enough to take it. We have some repeat buyers, but most of the time we're taking the deals down, bringing them, listing them, getting them cleaned up a bit. Um, and so that's what we're doing. And we're looking for flips and we're looking for projects that we can do subdivisions on. Okay. Now, um, when you're executing the plan, right? Where are, are you looking in one market, two markets, 20 markets at a time? What does that scope look like? Yeah, I think it depends on, you know, this is kind of a tough, tough one to answer because six years later, what I would tell you from day one is I would just go after the big, the big deals, right? The whales, because you do one or two of those a year and you make more money than you do on the smaller ones. But also it's very intimidating for someone who's never done a real estate deal to go out and put together a multiple million dollar deal off the bat, right? So I'm also a proponent of people getting started doing smaller properties. And so I think which route you're going changes that answer a little bit. Um, Because if you're doing a more rural approach where you're going for cheaper properties, um, you're going to have a higher hit rate. I like to explain it like, like, like we get this dopamine hit when you get a lead and you get a deal, right? Yeah, man. So sometimes doing five or 10 small deals to get going, just get your engines going, right? And then it really gets you motivated. So that's what I think you find when you go, call it two, three, four hours away from a major city. You're going to find a lot of desert, just tree, forest land, completely undeveloped. But people love to buy it because they want land and they can't afford the stuff near the city. So they just buy farther away because it's cheaper. 
So you can go mail out there. And if you're going to do that, you probably want to choose a handful of areas, probably five or 10, right? Just to have the volume of touches, right? Of letters or phone calls or whatever it is. As you get closer to the city and you maybe start playing a little more on the value add side, I think it, it serves you very well to get really ingrained in a few markets, right? Because there's more rules and there's, you need contractors or you need attorneys or you need whatever the hell it is, right? It makes things go faster um, for those larger deals. So it kind of depends where you're going, right? Um, I work in about five sub markets of Dallas and Austin in, here in Texas for our bigger deals. And then we do a lot of smaller deals in West Texas, Southern Colorado, all over Arizona. Um, but for the bigger deals we do, like it's, it's closer to home and it's in markets I know well. So are you, uh, when you're selling on terms, are you actually conveying a deed at the closing or are you doing like a contract for deed? And at the end of the arrangement, that's when the deed is transferred. Definitely depends on the state. It depends on the state. Um, Texas doesn't like contractor deeds as much, whereas Colorado and Arizona and New Mexico and Oklahoma, they don't mind it as much. Texas is not a big fan of it. You can do it, but it basically is you might as well just have a deed of trust. So anywhere that I can get away with a contract for deed, it limits my exposure and liability the most, I believe. Um, and it gives me that mechanism of taking the property back quickly, right? I don't have to wait for a judge. I don't have to wait for anybody. You violated a contract, you're in breach. And the remedy for that in this contract is that I retain, I regain possession of the land, right? So if somebody defaults and they miss and they hit all the terms in their contract, which is generally 60 days behind um, and no contact with us, then you're, then the property's back in our possession and the six day 61, it's relisted and ready to go again. And if they paid, you know, say it's a $50,000 property. If they paid $15,000, well, we're going to go sell it again for full, for full value. So it was just a $15,000. It was like a free 15 grand we got on the deal, right? Yep. And we're just going to go sell it again. Um, in Texas, Texas likes deed of trust, uh, there, which is probably smarter <laughs> for the consumer's protection, but, um, they do deed of trust. And so anytime we have a foreclosure situation, it's almost always a cash for keys, um, where I'm going to give them some money back and they're going to deed it over. And we're not going to, we're not going to have to deal with any lawyers. Uh, yeah, you know, we've had a few times where we've had to go through the full foreclosure, but, um, 97% of the time, we don't have any courts or anything involved if someone stops paying. Uh, could you spend a, a, another minute on the deed of trust? So uh, yeah. what, what essentially, what are the rules around that? How does that work? So they can't build typically on the property because if they're going to build, well, this is why I put that. A, I don't want somebody like, making permanent changes to the property that they don't own. So I don't want them to go dig a 40 foot pit, right? <laughs> and then they default on the property and I get it back with a 40 foot pit. Um, and second is if you can afford to build, you can afford to pay off the land loan or wrap it up and do a construction loan, right? Um, so they can't build, they can use the property, whatever it says, whatever the local county rules are recreationally. So if they want to take the RV out there or camp on it or whatever, they can hunt on it. They can do all that good stuff. Um, and then trying to think what else is in there. Um, it's pretty standard 
uh, it's just a pretty simple deed of trust. Uh, and so the two things we file, we, we file a deed of trust that references a promissory note, and then we don't file the promissory note. We keep the promissory note on the side. And so the promissory note, the, the deed of trust basically says, you know, for value in consideration, referencing the promissory note, and then the promissory note says you owe $800 a month for six years or whatever it is, right? Got it. Um, but yeah, so most of the time, right, they have the deed, they know it's going to be a pain in the butt for us to foreclose on it. And so we go to them and we say, hey, look, you've paid 15 grand. Let me write you a $5,000 check and like, let's just exchange, which we'll just do a quick, quick, quick claim deed. I'll send you a check and we'll be on the way. Right. And that typically works. Um, the only times it really hasn't worked for us is when the person has just downright disappeared into thin air and you can't find them. It's like, well, you just got to go take it and foreclose on it and they don't show up. So, um, but most of the time, yeah, very easy to get the land back and resell it when somebody doesn't pay. Are you getting into the entitlements? Are you replatting? How far are you taking it, uh, if at all, on those larger tracks that you're targeting now? Yeah. So, you know, as I told you before the show started, I don't like red tape. I don't like people being in my way of getting to the finish of a project. And a lot of states have a statutory regulation or a statutory exemption, rather, that says if you're cutting a property to say you're taking a hundred acre property, they say, as long as the lots are bigger than X, you don't, and you're outside of a city jurisdiction, you don't have to replat, you're already approved. So the state will basically approve it for you on a level. And as long as you're outside of the city limits, right? So as long as I'm outside of the city of Dallas and I'm just in the county of Terrell, right? Then I'm good. I'm just I already know a base level of what the regulations are going to have to be. Some states have this, some states don't. Um, Texas is 10 acres, in some cases, five acres, but most of the time, 10. So I can go, I can reach out to the owner of a 100 acre track, and I can already know pretty darn good and well that I'll get nine tracks out of it, give or take nine to 10, um, because the state says I can do that rather than having to go and get the property under contract and then talk to the city council and make sure that they're okay with that or we have to zone it or any of that nonsense. So that's my favorite kind of project is to go find a larger track. Um, now, sometimes to answer your question, we, we do when we have replatted and it's just when it made the most sense, right? It's like the headache was worth the extra, you know, the extra yield we would get out of the project, if you will. Um, so like sometimes the, like, for example, a project I can think of it just had a lot of it had a big like 8000 foot corner of road frontage. Right. And road frontage is the holy grail and you're subdividing because you don't have to cut roads, which are extremely expensive. And so it made a lot of sense to utilize that road frontage and go lower than 10 acres. Right. Longer, skinnier track, 10 acre tracks looked kind of funny and one acre tracks were beautiful. And so we went through the process and got one acre tracks plotted out again, since it's outside of the city it's just going through the county regulation. So it's honestly very simple. Normally the local surveyor almost always knows exactly how to do it. <laughs> that's the, that's the hack there is you don't got to figure it out. You just got to hire the surveyor that already has done that before. And they're like, Oh, well you talk to bill and we go here and we get it signed and we'll just take care of that for you. That's the, that's the surveyor's job. Um, but yeah, I like to know for feasibility and like financial feasibility, 
what's the worst case here? I can cut this into 10 acres. What a 10 acre track sell for? And then we can do the math backwards to figure out if the project makes sense. Are you just not doing those deals where you you don't have a ton of road frontage and you've got to do an internal road network? Because that gets that could get messy and and could be a a headache, right? So are you just staying away from those deals altogether? So how I like to describe it is it, we've done variations of all the things. We've done roads, we've done power, we've done water. Uh, well, I guess not all things. We have an extended sewer infrastructure. Um, but we've done them all in different ways. When the properties are rural, you can actually get creative. Um, there's these these cool systems where you can drill. Say you're getting 10 lots. You're making 10 lots, right? And there's not enough road frontage for it. Basically, to extend a water line is always expensive. So instead, you can drill a well and you can have pressure tanks that are always filled. And it acts in the same way that a water line would. So as long as the well is full, you know, then and the wells are always full typically. Um, so there's a lot of cool ways you can do it. But to answer your question, we generally don't do much entitlement. Um, again, I'm not afraid of doing an entitlement project, but it's just the use of my time, right? Um, and I also find that entitlement projects in a spec they're speculative in nature. And when you're in a market where you don't want to be doing like <laughs> Where you want some certainty, right? A uh, like an entitlement project is often um, it's very speculative because you often have to put up hundreds of thousands of dollars before you're ever backed by any sort of asset to know <clears throat> to know if you can do your project, right? Um, and so, unless I'm getting into like a like we have, I have one property that I'm just holding right now. I don't know what I'll do with it. It's like four and a half acres next to us, uh, a nice neighborhood and a golf course. And it's zoned for higher density multifamily. I think we could do a multifamily build on it. I think we could do a storage build on it. Um, the county was pretty open to all of them when I talked to it, right? So like we will do it, but at the end of the day, it's just a lot of red tape, paperwork. Like the timeline on that deal is going to be 12 to 18 months minimum, I would think where I can go through an entire subdivision construction listing, sell everything's closed through title in six months. Right. So for me, it's just where my momentum is. And I'm like, I'd rather do three of those in the time it would take me to maybe do one of the other ones. But I've also got some friends that have made a bunch of money in titling land and selling to developers. So there's nothing wrong with it. Our game is just much more on this, on the minor subdivisions. Got it. So uh, are you looking at like timber value and whatnot when you're acquiring these, these parcels? <clears throat> so funny. I've gotten asked this question multiple times <laughs> in the past few days. Uh, it, on the East coast, timber value comes a lot more into the equation mm -hmm. um, because there's a lot more real feasible logging operations going on out there. Whereas there's not a ton of logging operations in Texas, Oklahoma, Etc. where we are. And the other thing is um, with timber, yes, it may have a value, right? But the actual time to harvest, process, get paid by the time you have all the fees associated with it, it's not as lucrative as, as, as people think. So if we're, if we're flipping a track that has timber on it, um, I'm never, I'm never investigating cutting the timber personally, at least. Um, I'm just saying, hey, and, and you can just call the log, like there's multiple logging companies. You can call them, they'll drive by your property. 
they'll do a they'll walk an acre of it, look at the types of trees and wood, and they'll give you a rough estimate of what they how much timber they think's there and and what it would go and what it would go for. So if they say, hey, there's a hundred thousand dollars of timber on this property, how I calculate it in my head is all right. I'm just gonna treat that as like an like an investment. All right. I'll like I will value the surface value of the land and then I will take say 20% of that timber value and add it onto the surface value. Right. Um, but in a lot of the areas that we work, there's just not, uh, you have to have very specific, the right kind of timber and you need to have a lot of it. So you get a logger to come and set up a big operation to cut for you. Um, so we rarely do much with timber. Uh, it, sometimes we'll just value it and, and pay somebody a little bit more because it adds timber. And on the sales side, I can say, Hey, it's got all this timber, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but we don't do a ton with it. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. It is an anomaly and there is a lot of logistics and there are, you know, right now there's a beetle that's eating all the ash trees, right? Like there's, there's a lot of stuff you have to contend with that said, uh, we've done well, um, in Pennsylvania. Uh, with mm-hmm. with those deals there there is some significant value that we've been able to pull uh off the land before going through the next steps uh and subdividing and so on yeah i have a few i have a few clients that work and live on the east coast and they deal a lot more with timber that's why i say the east coast is like i don't know why it just happens more out there because yeah. i have a friend he's he's been in the I don't know, the wood industry, the logging industry, whatever it is. He's been in it for a while. And then land was a byproduct of all his logging knowledge. I just call him anytime I have (laughs) have something out there. I'm like, what is this worth? I don't know. Um, But yeah, we haven't done a ton with it. We did have one in Oklahoma that was like 400 acres, just solidly full of trees. Um, And so I, I, you know, that one had some real value, I think, in the timber. We just flipped that track. Um, and so I could, the buyer was like, like land is just like, in my opinion, gold or silver or anything, it's limited in quantity and it's usable, tangible, which makes it more, (laughs) uh, which makes it better. Um, that's kind of the same thing with the timber. It's like, you're buying the land and you're buying the timber. Right. So when I can come in and say, Hey, you're buying a, you know, because I bought it from somebody who didn't really care about the timber that much. Right. I can say, Hey, this track has a hundred thousand dollars of timber on it. Right. Um, and we're selling the whole track for $150,000. So you're making a really great investment, right? Because you still have the land, timber grows back, yada, yada. Um, so we've done it a few times, but it just doesn't come into play a lot out here normally. Uh, you've spent a, what appears to be a lot of time, money, and energy focusing on a positive experience for the end buyer um, that yeah. is buying the, the property for you. Could you spend a minute or two talking about that? Well, yeah, when you're looking for land, traditionally, you hire a realtor, you get in the truck and you drive out and look at a property and maybe you like it, maybe you don't, maybe you want to negotiate on it and then you don't get that deal and you move on to the next one and the next one. It's just a long process and there's fees. Realtors are going to take fees, which are going to naturally drive up the price of land. You know, when somebody calls our calls our team, like we could, in most cases, like just close a deal over the phone, very simply in a matter of days. Right. And we're very flexible too. Like, you know, I, I might sound like a deviant, like from some of the things we've talked about saying, I love defaults, but on the other end during COVID, I worked with 
probably over a hundred individual loan holders to adjust their loan so that they could pay and they were comfortable for that time period. Right. I will do. And I tell my team, I want to do everything we possibly can to keep somebody paying and keep somebody in the property. Right. They get behind on payments. We'll give them a few strikes. Right. Hey, we'll just add that onto the back end. If you can continue paying, we're very, like, I think we're very grace. Like we give a lot of grace in what we do. Right. Whereas a bank would just slap on the late fees and push it into foreclosure and never like, you know, it would just be a nightmare with us. It's like, we're, you just call us and it's the same few people you're always talking to. Right. Um, and we don't have any real incentives for our salespeople to sell the properties, which I know sounds crazy, but land sells itself. You don't need heavy sales pressure. It's like the land will just sell. We just need a really nice friendly person to help them through that understand some of the specifics around what do people care about power water sewer like those are the three main things right and then some areas can have their own little logistics um but yeah man we've sold i would say 90 percent of our properties just from just internal right whether it was me selling it or it was our team now selling it um people just like to work with us and about 20 percent of our buyers buy again right wow um so that that says a lot, right? Is that they bought 10 acres here and now they want another 10 acres or they want 40 acres. And we also do this weird thing that not a lot of people I've heard do, but we will allow people to like, it's almost a used car dealership kind of play. But if you bought 40 acres here, right? And we have a listing for 80 acres over here or 10 acres over here or whatever, as long as it's more than what you've paid, you can more or less trade in your property to go to buy a different property. Wow. Um, and so we'll do that for people for no fee, basically. Um, we'll make, we'll make money because often the property is appreciated and we'll get it back for, we'll sell it for more than what we sold it for the first time. And they often take a discount and they pay more for the next property. So kind of exactly what you'd expect when you take your car to a dealership and they say, well, we'll give you $6,800 for it. Right. Same thing we do is we'll, more or less just handle all the paperwork, do all the deeds and allow people to transfer. That's something people like when they buy. Um, we're just easy to work with, right? We'll take a credit card for, for up to a certain amount of money, right? Um, we're very easy. So we've had a lot of people that have bought and then bought again and have just been in the ecosystem for a while. And we have a massive buyer's list too. Oh, that that's it, it. It definitely stands out. Uh, you know, as again, I've I've interviewed a number of folks and, and I've dealt with a lot of folks in the industry and your customer journey, uh, your testimonials. It, it definitely stood out. So I just wanted to touch on it. Um, and look, at the end of the day, our customers are our customers. Right. It's the lifeblood of what we do. And, and sometimes yeah. folks forget that without our customers, you know, doesn't matter how good we are, at what we do. Uh, you need folks. Yeah, man, you know, I've heard, I've been in places and I don't want to rat, you know, I don't want to, you know, talk bad about it, but I've heard people who are in, you know, they're in the rental game or during the apartment game or whatever. And they talk negatively about the renters or the people who are paying the, <laughs> paying the fucking rent. Yeah. Yep. And I'm like, you know, obviously there's quirks and stories, but like they're, they're the ones that have created your wealth for you, you know? And on our side, like, when if I'm selling a, a property on a mortgage and I'm holding that mortgage, I want to make sure that everyone's happy, you know, because yeah. at the end of the day, if they wanted to get, they could figure out Clint and find a phone number and make my life, you know, a pain in the ass if they wanted to. 
No doubt. Um, so, you know, we want to keep people happy and paying. That's a, that's a pretty common trade in business. I think. As we, we wrap up here, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, uh, economy as it relates to the land business? Is it, is it a time to pump the brakes? Is it a time to double down? Is it a time to remain consistent? What well, what does your crystal ball tell you? Who's the guy? Is it is it Buffett or somebody says, you know, or when everybody's fearful, get greedy or whatever it yep. is, right? Yep. Yep. Um, I think that there's gonna be a bit of a shift. Um, my personal what as it relates to land. I'll leave the rest of the economy to somebody who knows more about that (laughs) as it relates to land where I think we'll see less buyers are in luxury products. So I think we'll see less buyers. And I just closed today and I would, I got the email about an hour before this that the deal funded. I'm just so thankful. Um, But we sold a package of 19, there were luxury lots. We sold them for about a $240,000 price point piece the developer will probably sell them for three to three fifty, <clears throat> but I don't want to be in luxury right now. That's not where I think, I think some, there will still be luxury sales, but where we've made a lot of money and where the biggest buyer pool is uh, right now, I think is a 50 to $150,000 properties. So we're trying to find properties near major growth markets where we can create a product at that price point. Right. And then on the back end, we can competitively finance it, especially with the banks doing what the banks are doing, um, makes us working with us to finance it versus having, dude, for the most part, if you can make your down payment on a property with us, you're good to go. We don't need a credit check. We don't need any sort of income verification. If you can make the down payment, we're ready to roll more most of the time, right? So, so what you just touched on, I think might be the single most powerful thing that you've got going on a go forward basis for you because of the price that you're able to acquire. And because of the price point you're focusing in, you have the ability to beat the rates, right? Mm -hmm. You can go out there and when everyone is, is crazy as rates are raising and raising and raising, they'll come a point, I believe when you're going to be able to slip in underneath that and say, Hey, you know, by the way, 9%, 10%, 9%, 10%, we're doing deals over here at six and seven, you build mm-hmm. it into the price and, you know, you exactly. have your, right. It is what it is, but I think that's a super powerful tool. And, and I believe now that we have, we've crossed the Rubicon in, in the big cities. I believe that the, uh, the decentralization is real. It's here to stay. And until there are major changes in some of the legislative um, things that we're seeing come out of the big cities, these secondary markets and these tertiary markets that historically would get annihilated in a market turn mm-hmm. are going to do the opposite. I think mm-hmm. that, that of course, there are some markets that I'll never understand how the heck they're doing what they're doing. But I believe that the right secondary and tertiary markets have now stabilized. And this is the new norm, man. Like mm-hmm. coronavirus shifted a lot of things and work patterns and the ability to do this remote and the ability to step away and kind of launch your own business like a land business uh, is here to stay. And I think it's going to support those markets. And I think that there's a hell of a future in, in land investing in the future. Yeah. And the great thing about being able to finance and run that transaction cycle is 
as banks tighten up too, they're not going to land as one of the first assets that they'll stop lending against. Yep. Right. Banks don't love to lend on land unless you're going to build on it immediately. Right. Unless you're wrapping up the land into a home construction loan, because then they can go sell it to Franny or Fetty. Right. They know who's the buyer is, but for land, they don't always have the mortgage buyer where they have to shove it, shove it themselves. So it's the first asset typically is like, rural land that gets that gets the next followed by commercial land right kind of both at the same time typically um so yeah you know i think it's powerful just one in the fact that i don't think a lot of people will be able to qualify or even just get a, an asset backed mortgage for the piece of land right where we do offer asset backed mortgages i'm not going to sue you to come get the value of your property i'm just going to take the property back right whereas a, a lot of the lenders right now that my buyers were they're getting approved they're getting personal loans, not asset loans, right? So their balance sheet confirms the loan, which is their business. That's great. But not a lot of people can do that, right? And that's definitely not going to be the majority. And the rates are going up and up. We just had somebody buy that. That's property project I just told you about. Um, they the, the reason I was like, this thing, like I, every day I'm waiting for a message for this thing to fall apart or they want some concessions. Because they engaged us to buy this when rates were a pretty consistent four, four and a half. And I don't know where they locked their rate, in, right? I didn't know if they got up to six or up to seven. Uh, they said it funded, so I'm feeling better now. But, um, you know, that's that's something I was legitimately worried about. So, you know, I think it's a powerful thing to be able to buy a low and then control the full, the full cycle. I will tell people there's a lot of gurus and people out there that talk about this model as if it's the, like, holy grail of investing styles. I like to, uh, I'm not the the um, the most motivating guru sometimes, I think, because I tell people that to build the land note business, it takes a lot of time. I didn't yeah. really make a lot of money the first couple of years because you're negative after you finish a deal at the beginning, right? Now, when you're into that game and now you have 40000 50000 $80,000 a month on mortgages, well, then the game flips. And now you're making plenty of money, right? But to do the notes right, um, it takes, you know, it takes a year or two of really pounding the pavement for not a ton of upfront reward. Um, and the other thing I tell people is like every dollar I make in land, it goes to commercial assets. <laughs> I don't keep it like unless there's a great opportunity, I'll reinvest. Right. But the money that I make that I want to keep forever, I stick into a commercial asset. Right. Um, I, I like storage quite a bit. So I'll, typically I'll be in a storage development or syndication or building that we own. Um, so there are some downsides. Land isn't perfect, right? There's no depreciation, there's no tax benefits, very high tax, really. First time I got a tax bill was really, uh, really eye-opening. I'm like, well, how can I make that not happen again, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, that's what we do. And you know, it's not the holy grail, but it's, it's where I found my momentum. Um, and I think I still think it's got a five, 10 year run until it's in the like house wholesaling kind of, you know, there's a lot of people trying to wholesale houses, you know, um, and land is still not really like that. You know, there's definitely more competition, but it's a fun area to play. And I tell people all the time, if I ever go broke, I hope I don't, but if I ever do, like I can always pick the phone up and I can find a lot for $10,000 less than somebody else will buy for it. Cause I've learned how to do it. Right? Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's an invaluable skill. And when you're at the real estate meetup party, whatever, 
people always want to talk to the lane guy. It's not, <laughs> there's, there's 97% of people aren't the lane guy there. And there's, Oh, you do land. Let's, let's talk. Right. Um, so it's a fun skill set to have and I definitely recommend it. Yeah, no doubt, man. And in, in that vein, what's the best way for folks to, to find you and reach out Clint? Just find me on social media and follow me wherever you like to. Um, Clint Turner on all the platforms, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you are. We also have a YouTube channel. Uh, we put out one to two videos a month sometimes. Sometimes I don't, but uh, we try our best. Uh, we have a podcast. Um, it's called The Happy Land Pod. Uh, we talk a lot more about the mindset behind investing, a little less about skills and tactics. Because um, I think when you're when you're winning up here, you often have the fortitude to win out, you know, in the market. So um, those are short episodes. They're about three to seven minutes. So very easy to digest, listen in the morning, whatever. Um, that's how I would say find me. And then, you know, if you're anywhere that you want to learn land from new to like experienced investor, just feel free to reach out to us again on social media. There's plenty of ways we can help you get the basics of land and it doesn't have to cost you an arm and a leg. Right. Um, but if you are an experienced investor, it might be a little more expensive, but anyhow, um, yeah, but just love to connect with anybody over social media. That's perfect. Well, as always, folks, the links uh, to find Clint are below. Uh, Clint Turner, Away Land Company. Folks, let's get out there and start investing. Is never a better time than now to get things going. Clint, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, James. Appreciate you having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. Everyone out there, please stay safe.